This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, how are you? Hello, Catherine. Uh, I'm I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Looking yeah? forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's it's been a while, and you've been on my mind, especially huh, with the news coming out of the Middle East and just how horrifying everything has been on social media. Um, and of course, we follow each other on Instagram, and I've, I've seen some of the stuff you've been very helpfully posting. So I wanted to. Talk a bit about that, but before we do, maybe you can just share a little bit about how you've been uh, processing everything. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I will say that I think I developed some good self-care skills mm-hmm. early in the Trump administration. So I'm going to say that. Uh, and as you and I may have spoken about before, I have been a longtime reader of the New York Times, the habit I, I developed in high school and literally have read the New York Times every day. And, you know, sort of it's a religious ritual for me. And after the Trump election in 2016, I decided I was not going to do that anymore. And I literally <laughs> didn't read the paper for about a month. I mean, my husband was like, what's going on? And I just kind of let them pile up. And I will say that that I think there were times during you know, the last few years in which I've really learned this isn't good for my mental health. So frankly, when the events of the last, I mean, we're, we're talking today, it's been about 10 days, 10, 11 days mm-hmm. happened, you know, and that's one of the reasons I started posting on Instagram about it is that I think that for many people, these events have been really, really difficult to process and to think about. And, and so I guess I will say I, I developed some important self-care skills uh, over the last few years, and I put those to good use. Mm, well said. Um, uh, I have to be honest, the last couple of days, few days, I, um, I even sort of fell down a, a, a dark hole and realized what a lot of this content was doing to my to my mind and to, you know, my, my body, my mental health was really starting to suffer. And I just had to peel my face away from it. And, um, and I don't think I'm alone. And I think a lot of people are feeling that too. So I thought maybe we could talk about, um, you know, some, some ways that listeners can think about their own mental health, the way they're consuming content on social media and consuming content on the news right now. Um, so why don't you give us a primer about how and why we react to 
seeing horrific news and trauma uh, the ways that we do. Wonderful and really important question. And I'm actually going to, I will answer your question, but I want to back it up for a minute because it strikes me that for many of us, and I think you have just described your own experience and sort of going down the rabbit hole, that that tendency, which I bet a lot of your listeners can totally relate to Mm -hmm. when you described it, is something that we are hardwired to at an evolutionary level, that many of us, are drawn to negative news and negative stories. And that can seem surprising, right? Like, why would I do that to myself? Why would I be so transfixed with pressing, you know, refresh and and looking at horrific images? I'm teaching right now at Amherst College, Introduction to Psychology, as I do with great regularity. And my students and I discussed a a study a week or two ago that was done with very little kids. It was done with three-year-olds. And what they find is that very little kids, again, three-year-olds, will recognize a picture, an image of a snake faster than of a frog or a turtle or a flower or other images. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. And, so and they why? do these studies with little kids because you or I would, of course, recognize a picture of a snake faster than those other things because we've learned, oh, wait, snakes can be dangerous. I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. I've read about that. I've, I've heard snakes can you know, bite, et cetera. But mm-hmm. you see it with very little kids who have had no experience in the world with a snake, and yet you still see it. And what mm-hmm. researchers believe drives that is that you need to be hardwired to things that are threatening because things that are threatening might kill you. And so yeah. at an evolutionary level, we are hardwired to pay attention to the negative stories because it's probably been evolutionarily advantaged. Wow. So what is the what is going on in our in our bodies and in our in our minds when we see stuff like that? When when we're recognizing that it's threatening, that something might be able to kill us, what happens to us? So we are processing it as if we are, in fact, experiencing it ourselves. And this is probably, again, what happens at a very natural level. We experience physiological arousal. We experience emotion. So when we're watching horrific images, hearing horrific stories, many of us put ourselves in somebody else's position. So that might be the position of how would it feel if I were at Burning Man and all of a sudden rockets started firing or people drove up with assault rifles. It might be how would I feel as a mom if my kid was shown on social media being taken away as a hostage on a motorcycle. So we are feeling as if we are going through it ourselves or as if Someone that we care about is in that situation. So when we watch these images, when we hear these stories, we are really at some deep level feeling empathy and connection in some way. And that means that at a physiological level, at a cognitive level, at an emotional level, we are thinking, feeling, and physiologically reacting in our bodies at a lower level, of course, than people who are actually experiencing it. But we're feeling empathy with what they're going through, and therefore our body and our mind is responding accordingly. So is this what uh, psychologists mean when they refer to vicarious trauma? Is that the correct term for this? 
Yes, that, that's exactly right. And there's, there's really interesting research, in fact, that was done following the Boston Marathon bombing. And what they looked at is people who were not in the vicinity of the bomb, but people who watched repeated images of the explosions and the injured people and the people who were killed. And what they found was that people, in fact, were showing stress responses in a vicarious way simply from that level of exposure to the media images. So I have to ask you, since since empathy seems to be the evolutionary, let's call it a loophole, through which this trauma is, is taking over our, our psyches, how do we ration it? How should we think about rationing it, especially given how much you and I have talked about how important empathy is? Yeah, it's a really, really important question. So I think one of the real situations that's going on here is that we feel empathy, but there's nothing that we can do with that feeling. So when you and I have talked about it before, it's often been, hey, we feel empathy for this person, so I should speak up and call out problematic behavior. Or I feel empathy for this person, so I should stop and give them a ride or bandage their leg or give them money or whatever it is. The challenge here is that when we're watching these images and we're hearing empathy, we're helpless. And and yeah. that's what also is so devastating for us is that we're watching them, but we can't do anything. If we recognize people in need in our community, we can say, you know what, I'm going to volunteer with a homeless agency, or I'm going to start, you know, donating money to this particular organization, but that we feel agency in terms of doing something. In this case, we're watching it, we're feeling empathy, we're responding accordingly, and we're simultaneously absolutely powerless to do anything. Because the people in the images, bodies, you know, burned alive, there's nothing we can do from thousands and thousands of miles away. And in some cases, we don't even know where the people are, right? right. So you're... Yeah. Uh, events of people who have, have been killed. Obviously, nothing we can do. But I think the other challenge in the situation that I actually think is really weighing on people is we also know there are hostages. And as you and I are speaking, mm-hmm. I believe the estimates are right around 200 people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and again, some of those people may be alive. Some of those people may not be alive. But that is also, I think, something that is pulling our attention in a particular way because that gives us the feeling that there is something that could be done. And, and yeah. let me just make that distinction is that people who have died and, and we're seeing, you know, bodies who are burned or, you know, clearly people who have been have died by, you know, gun wounds, et cetera. There's nothing we can do. But there is this feeling right now hanging out there that there are people who might be able to be saved. It's interesting. You mentioned the hostages, and I had this really, really excellent um, discussion with Danielle Gilbert, who is uh, Liz Gilbert's sister. I think you know Liz Gilbert, or you've been on the show with her before. But um, her sister, Danny, hostage crisis expert. And one of the things we were talking about is, uh, is that you don't have to view the violence in order to bear witness to what is happening. And 
there was this really, you know, we talked a little bit afterward, and I, I, I have been wondering. We've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, my producer and I about exactly how do journalists make a distinction, make a decision about how much to show before we begin to sterilize the language or make it too general so as to not really tell people what's happening. And so I don't know that this is really a psychology question, but I do wonder how you think about that. How, how much um, information about the, the bloody details of this conflict and the developing war is useful for people to make decisions and how much is too much uh, where, we, where we begin traumatizing people? Because what we don't want is, you know, a world full of people walking around with PTSD making decisions. So how, how do you think about that line? So, again, I am a psychologist. <laughs> so, this is, <laughs> so, so one of the things that I think about a lot, in fact, is individual differences. And, and that means that there isn't a line because the line for you is different mm. than the line for me, is, right? So we don't have one line. There's not one right. line. And I'm struck by a debate that I think is similar in a lot of ways that has been carried out involving should we show images of victims of mass, of mass shootings, right? Yeah. So should we show the photos of the children at Sandy Hook? You know, should we show the images of the children who died, the teenagers who died uh, in Parkland High School? And, yeah. and, and that is something that people have varying different responses to. And I'm not even, of course, the parents that, you know, the family members yeah. should have the absolute right of that. But there are even times in which you've seen people who've, you know, posted on social media, hey, just FYI, if I'm killed in a mass shooting, please show my body widely, right? I want yeah. my body to be shown widely because there's this theory that those images would in fact maybe push people to create some action, right? Maybe if I saw you know, the seven-year-old who'd been shot 12 times by an AK-47, I would vote differently, you know, in Congress, or I would, you know, demand change. And, and I think the challenge is, for some people, that those, in fact, might be very persuasive. It's also the case that for some people, seeing such images would, would just be devastating and would really yeah. be um, intensely traumatizing. And I think it sort of speaks to the extent to which people have the ability to compartmentalize there's certainly lots of research suggesting that people who go into certain professions gain skills. So people who are pediatric oncologists. I cannot imagine many jobs that are more difficult than being a pediatric oncologist, right? That, that mm -hmm. I just don't think I would have the ability you know, to watch little kids uh, struggling and dying from cancer. And yet, of course, that's an extraordinarily important job. And, and there are people who are doing that job extraordinarily well. But those are people who probably have some kind of dispositional ability to be able to cope with tremendous loss and sadness and grief and also be able to function, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I don't think there's a single line. And, and one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the conversation that you had, I really enjoyed that episode, is that for some people, listening is actually easier than watching. And for mm. some people, watching with the sound off is easier. Mm. Isn't that interesting? 
Yeah. Let's talk about, so, so some of the, you know, we've talked about experiencing this as vicarious trauma. Are there other mental health ramifications of watching these atrocities? And what, what would you recommend people do as they're trying to stay as informed as possible? And, you know, if the, if the, if the wisdom is that this is an individual line and that individual people have different capacities for processing this, this content, this, these images, how can they pay attention to their mental health as they're doing it? What signs can they look for? How, how, do you, how do you recommend people pay attention to, for example, how their body is feeling when they're, um, when, they're, when they're looking at the news? So I think paying attention to what's happening in the moment is really important. So if you are watching the news and you start feeling, you know, signs of heart palpitations or you start feeling tears well up and you are really having a strong emotional reaction to it, I think being able to cut yourself some slack and say, maybe right now you don't have to be super informed. You know, right now, maybe you can take a break from learning about the latest atrocity. So as you and I are speaking about 24 hours ago, there was a report of, you know, 500 people uh, killed in a, a, an attack on a hospital. And again, reports are sort of coming out about what the cause of that was. But again, you know, there were horrific images of children and so on. So I think being aware of what's happening in the moment, but I also think being aware of what's happening more broadly. So sometimes people are like, I'm staying informed with the news, I'm following the story, I'm, you know, watching CNN or, you know, reading the paper or whatever, but then they also are noticing that they're having trouble sleeping, right? So that maybe in the moment they're actually not feeling it, but they're noticing that they're more irritable with their, you know, friends and family. They're noticing that they're having trouble sleeping. They're noticing that as they're exercising or driving, their thoughts are drifting back to something that they have heard or seen earlier that day. So I think being sort of broadly focused on how you're feeling in the moment, but also how the news might be impacting you throughout the day in a variety of different ways. All of that would sort of be a sign that maybe you need to develop some strategies of protecting yourself from that. Let's maybe talk a little bit more about those because I'll share, um, you know, one instance that I, uh, I, I, I did myself when when news about the babies being murdered was breaking. I uh, I stopped myself from seeking out the images, and I you know for now because I mm-hmm. knew I just I didn't I didn't want seeing them wasn't going to help me, and I knew that you know if I if I went and sought out those images that would be the last thing I thought about every single night before my head hits the pillow, and I mm-hmm. didn't want to Mm -hmm. do that to myself. So Mm -hmm. what are some tips um, for consuming the news, for being resilient as you're, again, trying to be informed, but at the same time, trying to protect your mental health? Um, Mm -hmm. what, what what, What do you counsel people to do? First of all, I think really having that level of self awareness is really important. So your example is saying, you know what, I'm sure there are images out there. I am not going to uh, try to see them. I'm not going to look for them. I'm not going to try to follow them. At some point when my daughter was maybe around 10 or something, she was reading a book. I think the book is called Marley and Me 
I hope this is not like a spoiler for any of your listeners, but I believe in this book, ultimately at the end, the dog dies. Like, I think that sort of is, is the story. And, and Caroline was reading this book and she was really enjoying it, really enjoying it. And then at some point I saw that she was no longer reading it. And I said, did you finish you know, that book? And she said, no, I got to a point at which I figured something bad might happen. So I just stopped reading it. And she literally had this belief that maybe the dog was going to die and she just didn't want to read anymore. And she stopped herself. And, mm. and I remember thinking, that's really smart because I think the dog does die. And she sort of had this premonition, like this might be going in a bad place. So I think that if people are finding themselves watching some story or reading some article online and all of a sudden it is feeling a little bit overwhelming, literally being able to say, I'm just going to stop right now because you can always pick that up later on. It will still be available. Yeah. I was listening yeah. to the daily, one of my favorite podcasts. I mean, other than politicology, yeah. obviously, <laughs> but I was listening to the daily, you know, a couple of weeks or 10 days ago, a week ago. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to hear this story and I'm interested in this story. And a person who was in Israel started talking and then referenced his children. And I said, I'm going to turn it off because I don't want to hear about any children who've died. And I, and I still haven't listened to it. I haven't deleted the episode, but I just said, I can't hear about somebody whose children have died or children have been kidnapped. And, um, and I just know for myself, like you with the images, I can't hear a dad talk about that right now. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I think the first step is really being aware if you hear or see something that is going to be very, very hard for you to get beyond, protecting yourself from it, protecting yourself from it doesn't mean that it didn't happen, but you learning about it or seeing those images also doesn't bring those people back, right? You seeing mm -hmm. the images of the babies doesn't make the babies become alive, right? And, and also, assuming you are uh, an ordinary observer who isn't in charge of making decisions about how to respond to things like this, then it isn't your job. Like you don't have a responsibility or duty to subject yourself to these things. And some people have jobs where this is required, right? Where they have to be informed. And I've talked to some of them as well. And um, you know, the, you mentioned compartmentalization and some of them are able to do that. And uh, in other cases, like maybe you should just explain briefly the difference between compartmentalization in a useful way and depersonalization or deselfing. Right. And, and that, and that can be a, a, a really fine line. So I, so compartmentalization is really being able to put something in a, in a box, in a sort of separate part of your mind. Uh, and, and this is a strategy that people can use to say, this is awful. This is, this is terrible, this thing that happened, but right now I'm going to focus on something else. And so you are sort of creating a division in your mind. You're putting that in a box to be thought about, dealt with, et cetera, later on. And, and that really feels different than depersonalization, which is about not thinking of people as themselves, not thinking of themselves, uh, not thinking of people who have been killed, been shot, you know, been kidnapped, mm -hmm. et cetera, as sort of a, an anonymous, uh, not individualizing or thinking about them as distinct people and sort of thereby not really showing appropriate compassion and respect for right. people who've experienced horrific things. Catherine, 
uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's good to hear your voice. Is there anything you um, that you've been thinking about uh, or that you think would be useful to touch on before we go? Sure. So I'll just say briefly that I think that, as you and I have discussed already today, I think there are individual differences in how people process information. People who have, for example, experienced a recent loss or have been in a similar situation in some way in their lives may, in fact, be responding to it in a much more um, intense way. I have a colleague whose uh, son actually lived in Israel for a long time, and she visited last summer. And so she's in communication with people who are you know, currently in Tel Aviv and who are, you know, very, very worried about themselves and their families. And that's, you know, a different experience than some other people have. So it's feeling much more personalized for her. Mm -hmm. So I think that being aware of you may be feeling something different than your family member, romantic partner, you know, sibling, colleague, et cetera. I think it's also the case that people should figure out what feels okay to them in terms of being informed. So for some people, it might be an obsessive need to read everything. And other people might say, I need to check the headlines each morning or, you know, at my lunch hour, but I don't need to hear the sort of, you know, New York Times hourly, minutely update, you know, sort of thing. And then finally, I think that there are lots of ways in which people feel powerless, but if there are Things that you can do that make you feel as if you are helping in some way, whether that is voting for candidates who support, you know, what the action that you believe should be taken in this situation, whether that means donating money to humanitarian efforts, whether that means, you know, supporting friends uh, in the community who may have, you know, have a loved one missing, whatever. I think finding ways to create some action that feels good often helps us feel less powerless, and that can be important. Excellent. Well said. Catherine, thank you. Um, it's always a pleasure, as I said, and uh, we'd love to have you back and on the roundup soon. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.